You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Lauren Gunderson. The prolific writer is, after Shakespeare, the most produced playwright in the country this year, 2019, according to the annual survey conducted by American Theatre Magazine. It's the second time she's at the top of that list, and when she's not at the top, she's usually somewhere not much farther down. But if you live in New York City, there's a decent chance you've never seen a play by Lauren Gunderson, because while her work is performed all over the country, she's carved out her impressive career largely without New York, where productions of her work are rare. But this winter, New Yorkers have the chance to check out Gunderson's work with The Half-Life of Marie Curie, now playing off-Broadway in a production that stars Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradini, and produced by Audible, which will also release an audio adaptation of the play on its audiobook platform. Gunderson's in the studio with me to talk science, Jane Austen, Shakespeare, and how she's proving that New York isn't the only place to be a successful playwright. Hi, Lauren. Thanks Hi. for joining me. Thanks so much. What fun. So tell me, what is the official count of the number of plays you have written? Because you have many, many under your belt at this point. <laughs> I, I don't actually know. Oh. <laughs> I think it's probably two-ish dozen. That's what it seems like. It's more than 20 appears to be definite. I think and that then, is correct. Right. I, sh- right. I should know a solid answer to that. <laughs> yeah. <but> I um, <laughs> don't. You must write very fast. Is there, how do you do that? Is that through a schedule? Is that through a, yeah. um, do you have like a word count per day or something? No, or, I don't, yeah. I don't really keep track of it like that. I mean, I, I, what do I do? I get up as early as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work really hard for the first couple hours of the day. And I think after like 1 or 2 p.m., I'm a little useless. Right. But, you know, it's all problem solving for me. So it's, it's seeking out the corner of the story or the massive chunk, depending on the play and the problem of the, of the play. Right. Um, and really trying to like find, to, to hone in. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I hone in, I can focus on that problem. And I, I tend to solve it pretty quickly. But that's kind of the general churn of the writing. <laughs> yeah. And also part of that churn is just the number of ideas you seem to have. Yeah. Where do you have a standard answer for where you get your ideas and where mm. they come from? Um, I mean, it depends on the kind of category of show. I, I write a lot of history, a lot of science history, a lot of feminist history. Mm-hmm. And there is really no end to those amazing 
undiscovered uh, parts of history that I would love to see on stage and see be brought to life. So this is why it's almost dangerous for me to read biographies because it's two pages in and I think, oh my God, this is play. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, and then sometimes it's... um, uh, I mean, everything, lines that right. I overhear in the subway or um, right. amazing pieces of art or music or sometimes it's a feeling that I haven't, I haven't seen that feeling put on stage hmm. or a complex kind of a person with a, I don't know, some complexity in a person or a time or whatever. Is um, there a play that you've, can you name one of your plays that was ri- inspired by a feeling? Yeah. Um, so my play Exit Pursued by a Bear, which is mm-hmm. a, couple no- a couple years old now, is this this combination of rage and devotion. Mm. Um, it's about a domestic abuse survivor who is ridding herself of her husband finally with mm. the help of this elaborate, strange, farcical plot with her two best friends, one of whom is a stripper, um, uh-huh. <laughs> set in North Georgia, um, where I'm, I'm from Georgia. Oh. So it was this weird, cl- and I knew the tone of the play was going to be weird, but it was, it was trying to, ha- what is that thing where you love what you hate and you need what you don't want, mm. um, and you are braving that uh, with courage enough to, to save yourself. Yeah. Um, so it came out of that. Yeah. A, a lot of your plays have, uh, or a number anyway, have had sort of rolling premieres um, through the National New Play Network, so you get to see them like three separate yeah. times. How much, how much of watching the play with an audience through that process influences the kind of work you do on the play as it goes along? Yeah, um, a lot of it is still is my own barometer. I think if okay. I if I hear an audience reaction in one place and I change it and I hear another and it's different, and the only thing I know is, is my aesthetic mm-hmm. and my sense of what's funny and what's good and what's right. meaningful. So I try to kind of, you know, of course you, you are moved by the, the reactions around you, right. but I try to average it out and mostly use myself as, as a guidepost. But I will say I love in NPN so much. I think it's the best idea mm-hmm. in the last couple decades in American theater because of what it gives writers. Yeah. What is your aesthetic? You just mentioned your aesthetic. Do you have a, can you characterize it? Yeah. um, Again, a little bit depends on the play because it does kind of morph and shift when I'm writing a farce or a historical drama or something contemporary. But I I think it is brainy people uh, with great passion. Both of those adjectives means that they go fast, think fast, decide fast, um, face consequences fast. So there is an energy, a pace, that you just hopefully can't look away from um, because of what's next, what are they gonna do, what will become of them. Um, and that's combined with a, uh, a bit of, a, a lot of humor and a lot of kind of wackiness. Um, people that have, uh, I don't know, that people that like laugh at their own jokes. <laughs> I think that maybe my own personal aesthetic for my life mm-hmm. <laughs> and also of course plays into my plays, so yes. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Something like that. And you started to sort of allude to this. A lot of your plays deal with uh, people who are scientists, and they mm-hmm. talk sort of science seems like you seem to love science. Has that always been true? And at what point did you realize that science and playwriting weren't diametrically opposed? And could yeah, together? I mean, honestly, I learned that super early. It's okay. one of the reasons why I think I wanted to write plays was mm-hmm. actually science. Hmm. Part of which is uh, Copenhagen 
and Arcadia, both of those things. <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> when I was kind of a young in theater, but knew I really wanted to do it and was right. starting to investigate, what is this thing? How do and when, well? what part in your development was this? Was that this was high school or? High school, or? yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Right. I, I luckily learned pretty early that I loved theater. I mean, mm. this was in kindergarten when I knew I, I loved right. it. I didn't know exactly that, what I, that I wanted to be a writer until a couple of years later, but still that's middle school. So how lucky am I to know yeah. early enough that I want to do this? Yeah. Um, and so in high school, when I was really kind of exploring the, the world of wordcraft, um, mm -hmm. those plays were very popular. So it right. gave me a big old spotlight on, yes, you can write um, fiercely intelligent people and things and be creative structurally um, and all that stuff that still marks, marks my work now. But right. I will say when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know about what <laughs> would you want to write. Yeah. I'm, you know, no one in particularly that... I'm, I'm no one that's particularly special. Mm. Um, so I don't have this, you know, life story that's traumatic and needs to be on stage. So uh, as soon as I discovered the stories of science and the stories of history, I thought, well, there, there you go. That's drama. Mm. And science in particular, um, more than just general history, uh, because it has this human-sized moment where everything changes. And that, to me, is the crux of the most gripping moments in theater mm. is where with some decision, some one action that is human-sized, things change. Um, and we get to be in the room with them as they have these ideas or this proof is realized or you know, the bravery of a new experiment is, is, uh, is started. So I, mm. I've, I've always loved it. And how often do you think about, you've said in interviews, you've talked about uh, a couple of your plays draw on Jane Austen and yeah. Christmas which A, sounds really fun, and B, sounds like the savviest sort of sales move because <laughs> everybody loves Jane Austen. Everybody, every theater needs a new Christmas play because they're tired of Christmas, Carol. Like, how, how much does that sort of, uh, your understanding of what theaters want and what audiences want play into the kinds of uh, subjects you explore and write about? Yeah, yeah the Miss Bennett plays were, particular, uh, were particularly an answer to to a question that every theater asks itself. Yeah. Um, and my writing partner, Margaret Melcon, um, was worked on kind of the other side. She is a literary manager and literary dramaturg, um, and so worked with me on a lot of plays before we started writing together. And then it was in a conversation as we were driving up to actually Ashland, Oregon mm. Shakespeare oh, Theater Fest, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, of course, um, and had this conversation about like, God, I'm so tired. From San Francisco. From San Francisco. How long of a drive is that? Like it's five, five and a half hours. Oh, okay. Six, okay, that's not terrible. Maybe six and a half. Right. Somebody's going to correct me. Anyway, yeah. yes, long enough where we yeah. had to like we could have some long conversations and we posed ourselves this question and Margo was like, what about Jane Austen? I was like, that's a great idea. I wonder what we could do. Well, you know, she, the other sisters don't are, don't get much play in the books. Oh my God. They, oh my God. There's so many sisters. We yeah, could just there are a lot of sisters, right? Man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then it was what you exactly said at the beginning, which is it's a lot of fun. It's a mm -hmm. play that uh, it's a very well welcoming play. So everybody, uh, now the first play is called Miss Bennett, Miss Bennett, Chris, no, Christmas the second, yeah. <laughs> the second one is called Christmas at Pemberley? No. It is Miss Bennett Christmas at Pemberley. Okay, great. And then the second is the Wickham's Christmas at Christmas Pemberley. Christmas at Pemberley. So we have, okay, great. We have yeah. a theme. So, so many yes. Christmases, so much Pemberley. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a, 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 we kind of reversed engineered a show that we wish we'd had growing up. Mm. Um, and one that can put, frankly, a hell of a lot of women on stage. We insist that directors um, and casting directors focus on a diversity and an inclusive cast. So it's not just the 
British white people parade, right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. which is made for the most warm feelings when it's about this time when these plays start being launched. The Wickham's just launched in Chicago at Northlight. Right. Um, and uh, so we get to see these just array of photos of the most wonderful actors um, all across the country. Uh, and every year it's kind of my Christmas present. Right. <laughs> these photos of all these beautiful women in beautiful right. costumes and they're all, they're together. Um, so yes, that, that show has been, um, I think, understandably successful because people are looking for something that has intelligence and heart, right. but is welcoming enough for audiences that you can do year and year again. And we're starting to see theaters now do Miss Bennett um, more than once. Uh -huh, yeah. And then uh -huh. now we have Wickham's and then we're right. writing a, a third one um, right. that will complete our trilogy. The trilogy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about the reason you are here in New York from uh, San Francisco, the Half-Life of Marie, Marie Curie, which mm -hmm. is uh, having its world premiere at the Manhattan Lane Theater. Um, Indeed. Uh, tell me, where did the idea for that come from? That was a commission from Audible, the producer, so yes. you told me. Yeah, I mean, I, I write a lot about science and women and history, and mm. everyone kind of goes, where's your Marie Curie play? <laughs> and mm, I don't, yeah, I don't, fair enough, yeah. I write, <laughs> the only female scientist people actually know right. by name is <laughs> usually true, right? her. <laughs> so, uh, but it felt a little too obvious, and but th the truth was I didn't know, I didn't have a way in, um, right. because she felt cold and distant and um, unemotional and uncomplicated, and then, of course, like a dummy, I just didn't read enough about her. And then diving in, the complexity of her life. What prompted you to dive in? Well, um, I, well, okay. So actually it was a Google Doodle. You know when you go to Google mm -hmm. for their page <laughs> yep. and they have little doodles, their little pictures, and you click and yeah. it'll tell you what the heck that day was in history that was right. of interest. One of them was of Hertha Ayrton. Okay. Didn't know who she was. Yes. But she, she is looked... the other character in the Half-Life of Marie Curie. She's indeed. Uh, uh, also a woman I'd never heard of until last night. Yes. Um, most people haven't. Yeah. Um, but she, in the little doodle, it looked like she was doing some manner of science. Mm. And I thought, I don't know who that is. I know all the lady scientists. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just did a few clicks and found this incredible woman, British scientist, won the Hughes Medal, um, was an engineer, and all, all these very interesting things was a, a, a a fierce uh, suffragist mm. um, at that time. This is, you know, turn of the century. Uh, and this one little um, footnote mentioned her devoted friendship with Marie Curie. And I thought, well, that, mm, mm. <laughs> so here we go. Now we have a very famous scientist and an unknown scientist who had a, a female friendship, a mature female friendship. Both of them had daughters. Um, both of them were, of course, you know, had certain survived various versions of sexism and bias, um, of course, that we still go through now. And, you know, it, it, so the, the, the real crux of the play started with, what do we, what do we not expect Marie Curie? Uh, mm -hmm. to, in what state do we not expect her to be when we meet her? And the answer was the state of Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because truly, this moment in her time and time that the play is about, we find her in the middle of a sex scandal. Marie Curie? Yeah. A, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. But, so yeah. it is. it was the most interesting thing to read and then to see that her friend Hertha basically saved her life by saying, you know, let's get you out of France. This, the press is being horrible to her, following her around, following her children around, writing the most terrible racist things about her, sexist things, of course, all of this stuff about her. Um, and we find her at this, this lowest point and her friend is there to say, get out of here, come with me, just come. And so she, literally, the true history is that she kind of steals Marie Curie mm. across the English Channel um, using a pseudonym and like, you know, it's very kind of spy versus spy. Mm. 
And it truly is a story that is has become about two women. Um, and there's not a romance between them. It's not, the other doesn't need something from the, you know, it's literally about how we save ourselves, how, how friends save us. So, yeah. And at what point did Audible get involved? Did you Had you had that idea before Audible started talking to you? Because this is part of a program that we should say Audible uh, yes. you know, is producing plays that they are then uh, recording for mm -hmm. and releasing as, uh, I mean, audiobooks? What will you call it when it, yeah, it's do like you an, call a, it an audiobook, an audio drama? Like a radio an audio, play. Yeah, audio uh -huh. drama, yeah. radio play. And of course, the British um, are very familiar with radio plays and right. radio dramas. Yep. We are not over no. here. But that is a, um, a form that they know very well. And so it's, a, it's a quite interesting to, to think about how, how it would change things for me. And I actually do think that the Audible Commission program is pretty fascinating because if I were a kid, I grew up in right out, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, not the biggest theater town in the world, <laughs> but I was so thirsty, as I mentioned, reading Copenhagen and Arcadia. And this program would have, I think, changed the course of my career because yeah. I would have been able to experience new plays in New York. Um, I didn't go to New York till I was 16 or 17. Yeah. So as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, I could have listened to these plays. So in that way, it kind of warms my heart a little bit to be involved yeah. in this project. It would have meant a lot to me as a kid. Did the fact that it is being recorded as an audio drama influence the way you conceived the play and what happened on stage? And, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I realized very quickly that what I love most about theater are the silent moments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the glances and the urges, right. but you can't say anything, mm -hmm. and what you're trying to hold back. or. And a lot of that, I thought, was um, not going to work mm -hmm. uh, for a radio play. But in fact, you realize how much uh, substance there is in silence. You can actually convey a lot. But it also meant that when we were given the opportunity to, to stage it in this beautiful production, we could, there's, there's things on stage that you won't totally get in the, in the radio right. version or the audible, audible version um, that you get to see in the play. And so I kind of like that it is a different play than it is an audio play, but it is also the same. And it will not be recorded with an audience, is that right? No, no, no. It, yeah, right. They recorded right. it in the booth. In the studio, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, I will, to answer your earlier question, the idea, I'd been thinking about this, but it really was there. Um, uh, I, I gave them a couple of ideas, and this is the one that they said immediately, that one, that's the one we want. I can't wait. Write it right, right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, as all plays do, took the, the pitch worked, but yeah. the play is different. And so right. I, I just and how long, like, what, how long does it take for you to write a play? About a year. Okay. Um, and that is... How many plays are you working on at the same time? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it depends. I mean, I can't work on new plays at the same time, like three new plays at sure. the same time. Yeah, that makes but sense. As long as they're yeah. different phases. One uh -huh. that's on draft three, one that's very early and I'm just kind of trying to figure out how to talk about it. One that's I'm fixing typos and okay. doing rewrites um, for production. So, you know, as long as they're staggered, I can kind of keep things in, right. in my mind. Right. And this one is having its world premiere here in New York at the Minetta Lane. What, uh, what's that like for you? You don't, uh, we, you weirdly have not, we have not seen a lot of your plays here in New York. And I so know. this is a, uh, Tell it's, me about sort of what's it what's it like? To sort it's of awesome. It. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. This company has the right people um, with the right uh, passion for theater, the right aesthetic, and frankly, the right resources to do a really kick-ass job. I mean, Rachel Hawk was doing our set. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Um, uh, and GT Upchurch is directing, and the the design team, the actors, Kate Mulgrew mm -hmm. and Francesca yep. Ferradani are. Works of art. Both I mean, they both excellent. Yeah. they're mm -hmm. both powerhouses. Yeah. And so, for me, it's writing a play that requires the best of, of everything, and they're a company that can give you the best of everything. And and they 
really believe in it. And I think they're, they're a bit disruptive because they're just kind of like, no, we're just going to make theater how we do it, which is yeah. we commission and we bring people in and we produce it and we record and it we, and that's how we do it. Right, yeah. So there's a kind of really interesting um, attack uh, on theater that I, I really like. So Have New York audiences struck you as at all different? From... Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's audiences or the people choosing the plays. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, both. They're yeah, obviously talking right. to one another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say I, I find I don't see a lot of history plays in New York uh -huh. that aren't musicals. Um, you know, Doll's House 2 being a, a, an exception. Right. But most of the time, it's contemporary. Um, or big musicals, and I, of course, love to write a history play right. <laughs> more than anything. That, that's been a really interesting thing, a slight intimidation, because yeah. I'm bringing a history play to a city right. that doesn't do them very much. Right. Um, so I, I hope that what people see in our show um, has a contemporary feel. It's, it's fast, it's juicy, it's emotional, it's kind of nonstop. Um, but they are 100 years ago, right. and I kind of love that. And the truth is, the whole point of the play is it's the same sexism, the same hard work, the same bias in science, the same politics is now. So we, we kind of really, di di I think GT directed the play with that kind of nonstop fierceness um, for that reason. There, for, I might argue to say most people, there is this sort of conventional wisdom of, you know, how to be a successful playwright. And that involves, you live in New York and your first play gets done at you know, I don't know, a nonprofit, one of the nonprofits, and then, mm -hmm. then it sort of trickles out around the country from there, and then mm -hmm. you And I feel like everyone in New York sort of believes that. And you went to NYU for grad school, right? Mm -hmm. You studied playwriting at NYU. Yep. I feel like all your classmates, and probably you yourself believed that at the time, right? Yes. Like, when yeah. did you start to think, to realize that, oh, wait, that's not the only way that this can happen? Yeah, I don't know. There was no grand plan mm, okay. for me. It was saying yes to crazy things that happened as they happened. And how did you end up in San Francisco? You've been in San Francisco for a while now. Yes, yeah? okay. I said yes to a crazy thing. And that was it? Okay, yeah. yeah Basically, right. I was kind of being driven west anyway. I worked a lot with South Coast Rep and Oregon yep. Chicks is out there and Marin Theater mm -hmm. Company. Um, and so Marin invited me out after, uh, my, uh, after graduating from NYU. Mm. I had kind of a summer that included uh, time at the O'Neill and a couple of different residencies and things. And the last one was in San Francisco. And man, it's a gorgeous city. And yes. what a cool town, full of amazing people, strange, complex politics. It, um, it should also be said that it's not like you chose a city that's cheaper to live in in, in, in New York, <laughs> no, right? Because it, was, it is, I mean, I think San Francisco might be more expensive. It was a sidestep. It was not. It was, yeah, yeah, basically a sidestep. That's yeah, right. I think we compete for the most expensive city. I think city that's ever. right, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's such an interesting thing because it feels more like Paris than New York. Mm -hmm. um, just the vibe of it, the uh, the look of the city, um, and I, I I liked that. And I met uh, who's now my husband, and I found an incredible community of theaters who want to produce plays, yeah. not just work on on them. And so I I mean, in one year, I've, I've been there a couple years, three four three years or so, and I had five world premieres in one year. That's astonishing. In San Francisco, in yeah. one city. Right. What? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? I almost don't want to say that because everyone's going to be like, oh, I'm sorry, is that how it works in San Francisco? Yeah. Let's all move it. And it, it was amazing. And, and it was, they were all very different plays at very different companies. And mm. a city that can sustain that. And so is this all over? In. This is in San Francisco itself, and then you said Marin, and then mm -hmm. like, there are a number of theaters south of the city yeah, as well, yeah, right? Yeah, Theater so, Works in Palo yeah, Alto, works, yeah. and of course Berkeley Rep, right. um, and you know, it, it is a deep 
community of, right. of artists. And what I do love is we have some of my favorite theaters are like Crowded Fire Theater, which is mm -hmm. small, new, diverse, um, has a real kind of punk rock theater aesthetic, mm. and San Francisco Playhouse, which is, um, you know, we'll do some stuff that New York has done, but now commissions a lot of new plays, and they do musicals as well. And Marin Theater Company is kind of on the edge of, um, uh, of, of new playwriting and new playwrights. Um, mm. And so it, it really, it's a fascinating town. So again, I, there was no grand plan. Right. It was kind of a beautiful accident. But so you moved there right after NYU, is right that right? After, yeah, right after NYU um, and found myself in this. We are. And writing community. a ton of plays because you, right. Yeah, writing a lot of plays. And then people said yes to them. And then suddenly there, people were doing them. <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, makes me want to write more plays. And then it's, I mean, honestly, it's the thirst for being in the room. It's mm -hmm. that first week or two of rehearsal in, on a new play where it is so collaborative and so generative and so iterative, and we're all just making this thing together. Um, and that feeling of making a thing with people you respect uh, is addictive, and I kind of am always craving that. So all of this work and the fastness of the process um, and the I amount of ideas, I think, is all in some ways serving getting me back in that in that room. Right, yeah. And I imagine you must get a lot of uh, questions from young aspiring playwrights who look at the amount of work you do and the amount of opportunity you have and just say, how did you do it? What, like, mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the advice that you tend to give uh, yeah. an emerging playwright? Um, it is advice that I got. One mm. is that writers write. So <laughs> instead of thinking about writing or planning your writing or talking about how you one day will write, write. Yeah. Um, and that, however you need to do that. Who told you that? <laughs> my, one of my mentors, Jim Grimsley, who's mm. an amazing writer and novelist mm. uh, at Emory University. Mm. Um, so another Atlanta, Georgia yeah. boy. And you went to college and you went to undergrad. I went to undergrad Emory, at Emory, yeah. Right yeah. um, right. And yeah. so that is what, but what that, technically what that means is get up every day and do it. Mm. You can write every day. Um, if it sucks, delete it. Right. <laughs> if yeah. you don't want anyone to see it, you know, scratch it out. Yeah. Um, but you can... And also what it makes you do is ask yourself, well, what should I write today? What is, if I'm feeling blocked, if I'm feeling like I don't know what to do, what's the way around it? And sometimes it's writing something else. Sometimes it's saying, let me just write a monologue for mm -hmm. no reason right. about one of the minor characters in this play, and I bet <laughs> that yeah. will unlock something, maybe make a whole new play. Um, yeah. And the other thing is see as much theater as you can, mm -hmm. read as much theater as you can, um, talk to people about it, find what you like about it. And it, you don't have to find what other people like about it, you can say, I like it. And the more you know what you like, then you can write what you like. Mm -hmm. And the real secret is make plays that you want to see. Right. Um, and then you're always going to be on the, the right, do, doing a thing you love on the right side of your own heart. Mm -hmm. um, and they may be deeply commercially obvious, and they may be totally obscure and strange, but you will love them. You want them to, to exist in the world. Um, so as long as that's your guidepost, mm -hmm. uh, it should be fun to write. I actually, I think my most guilty thing that I say is that I actually really like writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the process of it. I like the puzzle solving of it. I like um, the, the mysteries unlocked, mm. fixing a thing, building a thing. I, and I, I love that feeling, actually. So I'm not one of those writers that likes to have written. I kind of love it. Like, give me a problem. Let's figure this out. Why is that not funny? Why is this not moving? Why? That's just too long. Let's cut. What can we cut? How do we do it? The engineering and architecture of storytelling to me is just liberating and exciting and oof, I could talk about it all day. Hmm. I love it. 
Is there a thing that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were starting out? Mm -hmm. uh, dr dramatic structure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a thing you taught yourself by doing it over and over again? Or um, how did you learn? How did by, you come to learn it? Yes, by not doing it well or mm. not, not knowing that I didn't know it. Mm. Um, so when I went to NYU and my great friend and the amazing playwright and uh, screenwriter and TV writer, Steve Yaki, mm -hmm. uh, who is basically my brother, mm. um, he and I lived together here and he was, he was the one who encouraged me. He went to NYU a year before me, but we know each other from Atlanta. And he was like, dramatic structure, girl, I just learned it. This is amazing. <laughs> this is the secret to all the things. And I was like, what are you talking about? Um, I, so learning that, learning, and you know, the beginning, middle, end of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it can sound a little anti-art sometimes because it sounds formulaic. It sounds like you just show up and you know, uh, the, put in words to a form that already exists. And of course, that's not it. But what it asks you to do is to be always aware that you are creating a journey. And the journey isn't just go to the store, come home. Um, it is the ups and downs. It's cre crafting that rise and the fall and earning and knowing that you're doing it. So it's not an accident that right. we get to the end and we, we care what Hamlet does in that last moment. It's not an accident. There's purpose to those decisions, purpose to when he does this and why he does this and how it causes this and how it is inevitable that we end up in that sword fight. Um, and I think that inevitability is the, is the engineering of a good story. Um, yeah. I feel like the speed with which you write would make you a good candidate for TV writing because yeah. they, they need a lot of writing really fast. They um, do. <laughs> and often rewriting really fast too. Um, is that a thing you are interested in exploring or have explored? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've explored a little bit. It's kind of right project, right time, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and because I don't live in either New York or LA, right. it's, a big, it's a big commitment uh, to yeah. move. But I have written on a couple features um, and do more screenwriting because it's less mm -hmm. about the room and more about the project. Right. Um, right. So yeah, but I, I think I'll, I'll definitely do it at, at some point. Yeah. And I'm sure it will be fun and crazy making yeah. <laughs> like yeah. all of our forms are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else are you, what other plays are you working on right now? So I have an adaptation of a big old progressive, anti-colonial, anti-sexist Peter Pan, mm. which they're doing at Shakespeare Theatre Company, which is a big theater in, in DC. Yeah. Um, so it's a real fun one to take on a mythology that is very complex uh, and n does not hold up well now and say, well, what about it is worth saving and is worth bringing to a new generation? And how can we take that as an opportunity to say, let's talk about um, these indigenous stereotypes, let's talk about the roles of women in the show um, and really do something new and exciting with it, um, but knowing that people will come and see it. So in some ways, taking the, um, the strategy of doing Peter Pan and turning it into a kind of activism almost, like people are gonna come see Peter Pan because it says Peter Pan, but when they get there, they are going to find a story <laughs> about <laughs> women with agency and uh, an indigenous character that has um, fierce intelligence and schools everybody there about what that, what that life is like. Um, yeah, so that, um, I mean, God, I, I, there's so many things going right. on right now. There's a lot. Um, yeah, but that, that's one of the ones I'm excited about. A bunch of musicals. Uh, yeah, you're, you're starting to work on a lot of musicals now. Oh my God, I, it's so funny because I hadn't really grown up. I was not a musical kid. I didn't do them in you know, any part of my school, really. Um, a, a very short solo in the musical working in college, <laughs> which my mother literally cackled out loud when I, when I sang my three lines. I know, I was like, mom, damn it. Anyway, <laughs> so I did not have a great relationship with it. Um, 
but seeing, seeing the musicals, especially contemporary musicals, and really learning how beautiful it was. But what's interesting was I'd, I'd written plays that always have a ton of heart. I don't want to see a play where the emotion is off stage. I want to see it center stage. That's what I'm doing there. How do you live this life? How do you confront sorrow and betrayal and joy? I just want to see it. That's what I want. Well, that's what musicals are. Yep. Man, they're like, we cannot have enough emotions. So in some ways, it makes total sense. Now, what I've been fighting so hard for in straight theater, it makes me a perfect candidate for writing right. musicals. So there's a musical Jeanette, which we just did at the O'Neill about America's first congressperson, a uh, female congressperson, which nobody knows who she is. Yeah. That's with uh, Ariana Afsar, who is an amazing um, musical theater talent, uh, composer and lyricist as well, and a London musical and a new m musical. That's, anyway, yeah. Musicals galore. <laughs> is there a play of yours that you wish would get more done more often, or that you wish more people had seen, had had a chance to see? That's such a good question. Um, yeah, I think it's the first one I mentioned, Exit Pursued by a Bear. Okay. I think it is. Um, it is a wild comedy. Does it have any relation to Shakespeare? Or yeah. That is the line from uh, Winter's Tale. Indeed, um, it has uh, In fact, it's a stage direction. It is Winter's indeed. Uh, yes, yeah. it is. In play about stage directions, really, oh, which excellent. sounds like, well, that sounds boring as hell. That but noises off. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they're both really funny, right? And and that's what I think what this play does, and I want plays to do things, and this play is one that, through wild comedy, um, uh, tackles uh, domestic violence in a way that, like, people don't understand why they're la I'm laughing so hard at this thing that is so serious, but what comedy does is it unites an audience, it makes you aware of the people around you, which builds community, and you're, you lean in uh, to a story um, instead of lean away, which some drama can force you to flinch and you know literally want to leave. Mm -hmm. And comedy is like, stay, it's great, the water's warm, come on in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's Southern, and I'm Southern, and it's a play about something that I think really matters. It's a play that ends kind of defiantly, joyfully, um, a play about friendship, and uh, yeah, so I, I think it's kind of an odd, an odd play, that, just aesthetically, people, I don't know if they would know that I wrote it. You know what I mean? They're gonna go, oh, it's not about science, and it's not people, women wearing skirts and corsets, and right. <laughs> it's this kind of ferocious, you know, comedy, so. Is there a wild idea that you have that you hadn't had a chance to write yet, or that you haven't found an opportunity for yet? Yeah. Oh, man, so many of them, always. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm at this point in my career where I will say, as much confidence as my, you know, southern humbleness will allow me. Mm. But um, I know how to write a play now. Mm. And so what is the thing that scares me? What is the thing to do next? What mm -hmm. is the thing to do with the form that I don't know if it's going to work? Right. But, um, I mean, I love writing every play. I love the discoveries and the journey of it. But what is something that I can do now at my point in my career where I can kind of tear it apart and mess with it and right. see if we can make something new? Um, so that is uh, one play that I'm working on uh, that's a commission does that, mm. and I'm a bit terrified of it. <laughs> and it kind of makes me want to do more. So I, yeah. I think there's a couple new ideas that, um, yeah, that I, I, I want to play with my own comfort zones, which I think every artist gets to that point where that's where they know that they're learning, ready to, ready to shift and change and challenge. We look forward to seeing those uh, when they happen. And happy opening tonight. I'm talking to you just before the opening of Half Life and Maria Fury. So, congratulations. Thank happy you opening. Thank so much. What a pleasure to talk. Uh, thanks, Lauren. That was Lauren Gunderson, the writer of The Half Life of Marie Curie, 
now playing at Off-Broadway's Minetta Lane Theater, and the author of shows that will be seen around the country this year, including Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley, I and You, Book of Will, Natural Shocks, and Exit, Pursued by a Bear. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or tell a fellow theater fan about us. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.